Final Night Poetry Slam. I want to sew the world into its sheets. I want to beat it with a bat until the warning sticks. A handgun is a machine. I'm tired of holding the wounded animal of my heart and instructing it on how to bleed. All I see are stars in the mouth of a tiny ghost. Can you hear that? All those pins dropping. Hello again, and welcome back to another week of the Mile High Poetry Slam podcast. My name is Eddie Eifler. I will be your guide through this week of spoken word poetry and analysis. Before we get into too many things, I do want to just kind of plug my presence on social media. If you're not a friend of mine, then you should be. My last name is uh, Eifler, E-I-F like Frank, L-E-R, and you can use that to find me on Facebook or on Twitter, either platform, and you should go there so you can find out when I'm going to post updates for the podcast. You find out uh, what's going on in Denver Poetry, the news, the uh, goings-on, the more recent activities, and just, you know, I need friends. You need friends. You should, we should come together. Also, before I get into this edition of the podcast, I do want to address one of the, uh, one of the bigger stories that came out as a result of this podcast. And it was in reaction to uh, Johnny Osai, his posts about being triggered, uh, feeling uh, a physical reaction to listening to last week's podcast. Um, let me just say that I assure all of you listening that was never my intent. Uh, my intent with this show is never to injure or harm. It is to observe and react. Because uh, at the end of the day... I am an audience member of a Poetry Slam. I am an audience member with a little bit more background or a little bit different perspective than a lot of other audience members that go to your typical slam, but I'm still just an audience member. And one of the things I try to do with this podcast is just kind of take in what I see, process it, uh, give you, the listener, my reaction, my feedback, uh, sometimes my analysis of it. And that is it. And so I, I apologize to Johnny if I in any way caused him harm. That was never my intent. And based off of what he wrote in his uh, post about last week's show, I take away that a lot of his reaction came from uh, my in misinterpretation of his poems that he read two weeks ago in the open mic. And really to that, all I have to say is that whenever you put a piece of work, a piece of creative uh, artwork out there, whether it's a painting or a movie or a poem or a song or what have you, then you're going to get people who interpret it in, in a way that you would deem correct, in the way that, that you intended it to be interpreted, and you're going to get people who don't. That's happened to me plenty of times in every avenue that, that I have explored as an artist. I cannot tell you how many different people told me that that my band sounded like one of their favorite bands. And I cannot tell you how many people have talked to me about what my poems mean to them. And sometimes they're right on the money as far as what I intend for them to mean, and sometimes they are not. And that's just kind of the risk that we run as 
as public performers. That's kind of the risk we run as artists who put our work out in a public forum. Uh, you're going to get people who really attach to what you mean. You're going to get people who really know what's going on and what you intended. And you're going to get pe people who really don't. You're going to get people who misinterpret what you have to say. And you're going to get people who, for whatever reason, internalize it one particular way. And you had no idea that it could be internalized that way. Sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes it's a bad thing. Sometimes it's a destructive thing. And sometimes it's it's really thought-provoking. Or someone tells you, like, oh, I think your band sounds like this. Or this poem, this means this to me. And you really have to stop and say, huh, I never really thought it could be interpreted that way. But that is interesting. And so, once again, I, I would like to say a public apology to Johnny Osai if I caused any kind of uh, pain or harm that was never my intention. And that is just the unfortunate byproduct of working in an art form that has such an instantaneous audience reaction to it as Poetry Slam. Uh, again, never my intention to cause any harm to Johnny. In fact, we've communicated uh, via Facebook Messenger. We, we've talked it out. And I think we are on the up and up. I think we're okay. Um, but just in case we are not... Uh, let me just, again, take this, this moment to say uh, I'm sorry if, if what I did caused you any harm. It was never my intention. Now, with that all out of the way, I would like to introduce some exciting news. Your interview this week is the one and only Franklin Cruz. He sat down with me and gave me a good solid half an hour worth of questions. Uh, and I think you're going to be really, really delighted at uh, some of the answers he had to offer up. He talked about his experiences on all the different teams he's been a part of. He talked about his approach to writing, his approach to community, his approach to coaching. It was a really, really fantastic interview. And I would be remiss if I did not publicly say thank you once again to last week's interview, Hoser, who has been proven to be the most popular show that I've put up so far. He is far and away uh, the record holder for the most number of listens in his first week with uh, triple digits. He, he's the first one to break into the hundreds of listens for the first week. So my hat is off to Hoser. I think it's a testament to him as a performer, him as a, a poet, him as an interviewee, and just a, a wonderful, wonderful person. So... Well, with all of all of the goodness uh, now set up for you, we are going to head right into the Mercury Cafe section. Denver! 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 Queen City of the Plains! Lift high our spirit! Sing well our praise! For in you we live! And our love! All right, your Mercury Cafe open mic and slam this week were the product of a second Sunday youth slam. So it was a little bit shorter of a night, a little bit more of a different night than we normally bring you. I will give you the breakdown of the open mic notable notes before we get into the slam. On your open mic, we only had a short list because we tried to get the youth out uh, before 10 o'clock. We try to get them out there before curfew because we don't want to get anyone in trouble. So we only had one, two, three, four, five, six. We only had six members of the open mic. Uh, of those, we had Wheeler Light kicking things off, reading his poem about how drugs can make you forget who you are and have you pretend to be someone you are not. The one that ends with uh, him shaking a flashlight's batteries and shaking a flashlight's batteries. It's such a phenomenal, such a great piece. And I, 
I'm pretty sure that I put a clip of that before up on this podcast. So if you want a little tiny piece of it, go back through our archives and see if you can find it. Uh, otherwise, you should show up to the Mercury Cafe when Wheeler Light gets up there and does his thing. It's a phenomenal piece, and you know what? He, he asked me beforehand uh, what he should do, and I was like, you should either do the one about similes and metaphors, where this poem will not contain metaphors, that they will contain similes, which are like metaphors. I said, you should either do that poem, or the one that ends with you shaking a flashlight's batteries. And he smiled at me, and he laughed, and he said, those are the same poem. And I was like, oh, well, do those then. Do both of them. And he got up there, and he did it. And he's just amazing. He's wonderful. Thank you again to Wheeler Light for just being a, a bright spot in in a great, great slam. After Wheeler Light, we had Changa, who is pretty new. Uh, I've only ever heard him twice, including this last Sunday. Uh, he is... One of the people responsible for the brand new open mic up in Boulder, I believe it's called Block 1750, and they've had a couple of your mainstays of the Mercury Cafe go up there and feature. They had uh, Connor Marvin, Asetu Shango. Um, this upcoming next week, they're going to have a couple more features from the Mercury Cafe. So I I appreciate what he's trying to do. I appreciate him fostering the scene. But both poems I've heard him read, I can really only classify as well-intentioned but offensive let me play you a clip and we'll dig into what that's all about i couldn't take it that inch now every time i'm naked i flinch i just couldn't take it. i'm such a little oh. so yeah that is changa and going back to what i said i don't think he means harm i don't think he intends to be offensive with his poems with what he's saying but that doesn't make them less offensive <laughs> So this is going to be more of a conversation for you guys listening, a conversation for the people out there. Uh, be really aware of who your audience is. Be really aware not only of the literal message that you're sending out there, of the literal meanings that could be interpreted, but of also the subtext. Uh, if this last week has taught me anything, it's that I need to uh, maybe do a better job of reading into the subtext of things that I have only really maybe done a surface examination of, but it does not take a very deep reading in to what Chang is saying here for anyone to see the problem inherent in what he's talking about. Uh, he begins this poem by saying that he wishes he could be bisexual because then he could just have more sexual partners. He also uh, mentions a time in the poem where an ex-girlfriend of his uh, attempts to manipulate him digitally in his uh, hind quarters, <laughs> uh, puts a finger inside of him, and he cannot even handle that. And all of this is just so blatantly offensive to a very wide range of people. But I will go back and say, I don't think that's what he's trying to do. I think he is well-meaning, he is well-intentioned, he just wanted the audience to laugh and smile because he was making a funny, funny joke, but in making this funny, funny joke... He really alienated a lot of people, a, a big portion of the audience. So I want to put this up there just as an example to anyone who can hear this of what that looks like. You can be a good person and write really offensive, really alienating poetry. And I think most of the time, if you are well-intentioned, if you do not mean harm, then people will give you the benefit of the doubt. But you keep doing this over and over, and your cachet is quick to run out. So that was Changa. Uh, after him, we had Jim the Man of Steel, 
Then we had Jess Nieberg reading a poem that I put up on here before, the one about how she intended to move to Seattle because it was uh, more you know wet there, more humid there, instead of the dry, arid climate of Colorado. Um, a, a great piece if you want to check out the clips from that. Again, I say check out the archives. Uh, go back through, listen to all of the episodes we've loaded up so far. There's only six of them, seven with this one included. I think it's good for your soul. After Jess Nieberg, we had Griff get up there and read. Griff is starting to become a little bit of a mainstay. He's read on the open mic and the slam the last couple weeks in a row, and I'm excited to see what more we're going to hear from him. And finally, on the open mic, we had uh, Gimmis, a.k.a. Madison. For those who have been around for a little bit, uh, you, you might recognize Madison. He's, he's got up and he's slammed, and he's read some open mic stuff a couple of times. Uh, let me play you this clip from him. Because I think it's a great example of a string of images and just how poets can play with language. So here's a clip from Madison. So scared, petrified, fed tryptophan, led Listerine like the tin cup whiskey rush mystery. Now, before he got up and read this piece, he addressed Griff, who read before him, about how language is this great thing and about how, how language can be devastating and language can communicate so many things. And I think, I'm not wanting to read too much in here, I don't want to put words in his mouth or thoughts in his head, but I think maybe that feeling led to Madison reading this particular piece, because listening back to it again, I could pick out a whole bunch of images, a a string of specific images, and the ways in which he plays with language, plays with rhyme and meter and rhythm, but I couldn't really pick out anything other than those two. There was no great theme, there was no great overarching message, there was no great touchstone to a lot of what he was saying. It was just more like him playing around and seeing what he could do with sounds and seeing what he could do with images and more of like a barrage of of to the audience like, here, now have this, and now here, have this, you over there, you in the back, I want you to think about this for a second, you over on the side, I want you to have this image in your brain for a second. And it really is a testament to the power of language, it's a testament to the power of poetry and and what we as poets can do and and the influence even if only very briefly for a second we can exert but for me personally i i take my poetry with a little more substance and a less surface and it is pretty easy to tell when someone is just going through the motions through the exercises not that there is absolutely anything wrong with that i'm not trying to say there is because there's not but my personal preference is for people to maybe not just throw a bunch of images out there it's to have them connect for a more apparent point or more apparent purpose so there was uh your open mic wheeler light changa jim the man of steel jess Niebuhr, griff and madison uh i did mention before this was a youth slam we did not have a feature uh on the slam we only had one two three four five six we only had seven readers on the open mic or we only had seven readers on the slam, and of those seven, we had quite a lot of team members from this year's Minor Disturbance Youth National Team. Uh, starting us off with your sacrifice was April Edwards, who has been around for a little bit, but it has been a little while since I heard April read a poem, so I would like to play you a clip uh, from April. Academic conversations about racism only enable the disassociative properties of white supremacy. This clip really struck me because April's talking about Uh, race and how it can be construed and how it can be taken in an academic 
way in an academic classroom, a college classroom, and how sometimes it's difficult for people of color to even broach this topic of race, of privilege, in a place where one would think it would be more open to dialogue, it would be more open to acceptance. But April really does kind of peel back that veil a little bit and say, you know what, race in an academic classroom, academic conversations about race, sometimes they're only there to kind of reinforce and justify the white privilege that's already there. And there's a big problem with that. So I really wanted to play that clip and really wanted to talk about this particular topic. Academia is considered a very liberal section of our society. And you would think that if there's anywhere in society where anyone can have these conversations about race and privilege, it would be in a college classroom. But that's sadly not always the case. And so I did want to put this out there just to bring awareness to that particular uh, corner of this conversation. After April, first up we had Emery, who is a member of this team. Emery's been around the scene for a number of years, and I absolutely love every poem that I hear coming out of him. Uh, one of the things that is noticeable, notable about this slam is that it happened on Mother's Day. And so we had a couple of poems that were dedicated to mothers or about mothers or uh, around the same theme. So Emery read everyone a poem for his mom. It's my mom speaking the language of her children, whose heritage is slowly slipping away until the R's in our sentences are only a slight stumble off of the roof of our mouths. This is a piece I've heard a couple of times before, but it never stops just being phenomenal. It never stops losing its luster for me. It is a great piece. It is filled with poignancy. It's filled with great writing. It's filled with uh, a strong theme, messages. Emery is fantastic, and I just wanted to celebrate him on this podcast. After Emery, we had Mahogany, who is a, also an, a member of the Minor Disturbance uh, Youth Slam team. And this is the first year for Mahogany to get up there and be a member of this team. It's the first time that I, I can remember hearing her read anything at the Mercury Cafe. And wow, uh, I cannot sing her praises enough. Mahogany is one of those poets who can put absolutely everything into a slam. Uh, you want funny, you want serious, you want light, you want savage, you want uh, thematic, you want love, you want hate, you want everything in a poem. Mahogany gives you everything in a poem. Let me give you a taste of what I was talking about. This is from uh, Why I Cut My Hair. My therapist is concerned. She says it looks great and fits my face to a T, but she says I wonder if it has to do with some issues at home. She says, I don't mean to go deep. I know how sensitive you get, honey, but you gotta tell me one way or the other. And I tell her she's right. I tell her that my old hair caused me pain. So just based off of that one clip, that one piece, it is easy to see how she is so able to uh, bend the language and thread this needle through all these different uh, emotions, through all these different themes and all these different subjects. Uh, I, when I tell my grandma I cut my hair, I tell her this. When I tell my therapist I cut my hair, I tell my therapist this. And with every new person that she's talking to, it's a different emotion, it's a different style. It's so good. This poem is phenomenal. And it's about something as simple as a haircut. Uh, let this be a lesson to you writers out there. There is no such thing as a simple subject. There can be simple poems, there can be ordinary uh, prose, there can be ordinary 
lines written about complicated subjects, but there is no such thing as a simple subject. You can make anything interesting, and you can make anything universal. Mahogany just showed you how. After Mahogany, we had Finn, followed by Esteban, then Rain. Now, uh, Rain is another member of the Minor Disturbance Youth Slam team, and I'm actually going to play you a clip of hers in the next round, but I think it is notable to point out that we had three so far members of the uh, Minor Disturbance team, and we're not even done with the first round yet. After Rain, we had Liv, and then followed up with Joanna, uh, who is our final member of the Minor Disturbance Youth Slam team. Now, this is also Joanna's first year on the team. Uh, she has been around for a little bit. Uh, her and Emery are together, and they're just cute. They're super adorable and super supportive. Like, they are just each other's biggest cheerleader. In fact, in this slam, when Emery got up, we heard as the audience, that's my boyfriend, up from the back of the room from Joanna. And everyone had to cl- uh, smile and, and laugh and say, aww. And as, of course, in... In response, when Joanna gets up there, Emery just yells out, That's my girlfriend! And everyone, again, just had to laugh and and think it was just a great moment. But beyond the moment, Joanna is also a phenomenal writer. Uh, I'm noticing a trend here. I'm noticing a theme. So here's a clip from her first round poem. This isn't a restaurant. You eat what I cook. Which is to say that what you see is what you get. This isn't build a bitch. Caught you a little off guard, didn't I? Didn't expect to hear that one coming, did you? Well, we were just the same, but it was also wonderful. It was also a great unexpected surprise when she comes up and says, this isn't build a bitch. You know, you get your own. Uh, And then keeps on talking about these sayings. Uh, So this poem, uh, in general, were uh, six sayings that uh, her mother uh, tells her that you could also apply to a a relationship. And so that's where that drop came from. Uh, Again, Joanna, a great writer. And again, another theme for connecting to Mother's Day. Uh, This was uh, very great. It was was such a a nice, well-balanced first round. Uh, for our second Sunday Youth Slam. Unfortunately, we did have one judge, you heard him before in the open mic, uh, give out a bunch of 5.5s in a row. It, It was like something happened, something snapped in this judge's mind after a couple of poets read, and then he only wanted to give out 5.5s for the rest of the night. I think he only deviated from that. He only varied up his score once, and that was for the second round when Mahogany read her second round piece. But uh, the audience let him know what they were feeling. They let him know that that was maybe not an okay thing to do, to just keep giving out 5.5s, regardless of what you heard, regardless of uh, whose mouth it came from or what was actually said. Uh, Maybe not the best way to uh, base your scores there is just give everyone the same thing. Hey, I don't want to tell a judge how to judge, but don't judge like that. So since we had such uh, bizarre judging from the first round, there were a couple of surprises into the second round. Uh, First of all, Joanna, even though she went last in the first round, did not make the cut, did not make it into the second round. And even though that piece that she read was really good, uh, still a surprise, a surprise that she did not make it past that first round. 
In the second round, we had Rain, who was the uh, other member of Minor Disturbance, whose clip I did not play. So let me play you a clip from her right now. When you speak, they can see your fangs. The spice in your voice sounds like a snarl. Angry black girl, predator, contain, domesticate, you bitch, before they throw you in a cage. Now, the reason I decided to go with this clip instead of uh, her first round is because I really, really dug what she was saying. I really dug the imagery the extended metaphor, how she was able to apply this idea of a werewolf to so many different things. She can apply it to being uh, young and black. She can apply it to being uh, identified as a lesbian. She can apply it to being all these different things. And she did so brilliantly. This was a very, very well-constructed poem. And I think it just resonated more with me than her first round piece. Not to take anything away from that first round piece. I just think this one really hit a lot harder. And I think she just kind of got swallowed up by score creep. Since she was going first in the second round, this was a gorgeous, gorgeous piece. And I think it deserved a higher score than it got. But I'm not a judge, and there's a reason I'm not a judge. After Rain, we had Esteban again. And I would have loved to put a clip of Esteban on the, uh, on the podcast here, but... He was so far away from the microphone, I didn't pick up any actual audio from him. At least no audio I could put on the podcast. It was it was very quiet, very muffled, and I remember listening to him and thinking, wow, this is really good. I really like what he's saying. But he's probably too far away from that microphone for me to put any of it on the podcast, which is a shame. So a note for everyone out there listening. Get on the microphone. Make sure everybody can hear you. Make sure that... If, you know, say a dashing young former slam poet is out there recording the whole show, that you get yours on there if you want yours read, if you want yours uh, displayed on that podcast. After Esteban, we had Mahogany again, and Mahogany, one more time, gets up there and does a poem that has everything you could ask for. Uh, it's it, The opening line of this poem was, I don't want kids. And that one line got just a huge reaction from the audience, a huge positive reaction from the audience. I think at that point, she could have said anything, and it would have garnered her high scores. So let me play you a clip from that poem from Mahogany. Maybe it's because I'm scared they'll end up just like me, all mouth, all fist, a broken off button with a broken body to follow. So based off the strength of that clip, there was a bit of a, another surprise in this slam. Mahogany ended up getting the high score of the second round, even though we still had one more poet to read. Um, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to see why she got a really good score. It's, again, just another one of those bizarre kind of happenstance of slam. Normally, you would say, like, the person going last has a big advantage. The person going last in whatever round is going to be that much more likely to either carry into the next round or win the night entirely. But tonight, it was all kinds of crazy. This was the one deviation from that judge from before where he did not give Mahogany a 5.5. In fact, he gave her a much higher score. And that kind of threw things off and imbalanced a little bit. But I don't think... That is not to say that Mahogany did not deserve to win. I think she absolutely did. She is phenomenal. And I am very, very excited to hear what this youth, youth team has to put together. With such amazing, such delicate writers on it, I am sure it is going to be just magic. It is going to be absolutely wonderful. But we did have one more person read in this uh, second round of the slam. It was Emery. I was beautiful before she touched me. 
I am beautiful after, but her light stroked my embers into a wildfire and they do not ask permission to burn. I do not ask permission to burn. And this was a brand new poem I had never heard before. This was a fantastic piece because it was filled with such great images and such great connections and extended metaphor. Uh, the, the line about my embers do not ask permission to burn is so compact. There is so much happening in this one line that I had to play it for you. Um, this was great. This was a great poem. I think that if there is one reason, and this is just me kind of like analyzing and reacting to the situation, if there is one reason why Emery did not win the night, it's probably because this poem was not memorized and was on the shorter side. And Mahogany's just kind of stood out because it was memorized. It was a more quote-unquote slam length, and it did offer so much of a diverse examination of a, of a topic. But anyone who has done any kind of poetry slam for any amount of time knows that it is a game. It is a silly bar game invented to get people to enjoy poetry. And that's exactly what at least I did this night. So much great poetry happened on that stage between our sacrifice, April Edwards, all the way to the very last poem by Emery in the competition. And even beyond that, uh, Mahogany ends up winning and ends up reading uh, Victory Lap that really does have a great turn, a great handbrake in it. Let me play you a clip from Mahogany's victory lap. Dear Ashley, I got in a fight today. He called you a slut and I punched him in the nose. I mean, how could I not? Slut was the word that killed you, remember? It was spray painted on lockers. Now, we as the audience don't realize the person she's addressing, uh, this dear Ashley that she's addressing in the poem, uh, committed suicide, took her own life, until well into the piece. And so it starts off really funny, really lighthearted, where the poet Mahogany describes her younger brother looking through her phone and reading her text messages aloud and trying to sound out the word fuck. And of course her mom getting upset, saying, you know, you, you use that word too much. But then slowly as the poem goes on, uh, we get revealed to us that her friend Ashley uh, took her own life, and that it really is such a heart-crushing, uh, a really sharp turn to this otherwise very funny, very light poem. Uh, the future is nothing but bright. The sky is nothing but the limit for Mahogany. If she is this good at this stage of life, I can't even imagine. If she sticks with this, if she keeps writing and keeps performing, if she sticks with doing this, there is no limit to the amount of success that she will have. And that's really the only question. Is it something she wants to have, or does life have other plans for her? Um, either way is fine. Not everyone's meant to be a professional poet, and being a professional poet is not for everybody. But Mahogany definitely has all the tools to do very, very well in this community. A couple of takeaways before we get into our feature. Uh, Franklin Cruz hosted the open mic, and he started it with a collaboration between himself and a dancer that he called White Boy, both of which were improv. Franklin has been going on just a freestyle kick as of late, and he also really wants to blend different uh, communities together. He is really keen on getting poem uh, getting poems together with dancers and getting uh, poetry together with visual artists and music and getting you know all of these things to swirl together in one big collaboration. 
And the reason I say that is because he is our interview for this week, Franklin Cruz. And so I thought it was very, very appropriate that I mentioned he began the open mic. He kicked off the open mic with a freestyle poem and a dancer on stage who was freestyling his uh, dances. And both were just so good. It was a magical, magical slice of time. Uh, Also, Franklin started two freestyle ciphers. In this night, he did a cipher between the open mic and the slam where he just goes outside, circles up, and just starts going off the dome, just freestyle, extemporaneous, like like a, a cipher that one would normally find at, a say, a national poetry event, like an NPS or an IWIPS or a, a Women of the World Poetry Slam, only Franklin just wants to do freestyle. So he goes out there, he circles up, and he's like, this is what I'm going to talk about, and go. Uh, so he did one between the old mic and the slam, and he did the other one at the end of the night after the slam was over. Franklin is magic. I don't know if there's any other way to say it. Franklin Cruz is a magical creature. Um, Yeah, so I think those are great segues into our interview for this week. You heard right. You saw correctly. Uh, Our interview this week is a member of every single national competing team that the Denver metro area has to offer. He has been on Minor Disturbance. He has been on Slam Nuba. He has been on the Mercury Cafe's national adult team. He is now coaching the Minor Disturbance team and being a beacon of light for for that group of young people. So I sat down with him, and I got a really great, uh, honest a couple of minutes for you. So here we go. Without further ado, your interview for this week, Franklin Cruz. Our guest this week is the amazing, the magical, the biologically intact Franklin Cruz. How are you doing, Franklin? I'm doing good. It's so great to have you on our show. Thank you so very much. i got a couple questions for you, if you don't mind. Fire away. Uh, first question I ask everyone, Life Slam. What got you involved in this venue? Um, so I originally went to a school called Denver School of the Arts, and there, there was this young poet named Sarah Kaplan Gould, um, aka Susie Cream Cheese. Love her. Um, and she was originally part of um, a crew called Minor Servants, uh, which is a youth sign poetry crew here, and would advertise constantly at our school. So one day, just followed her over to the Merc, um, jumped on the open mic, and then that was about it. Um, because as soon as I was introduced to that scene, I started participating more until I actually went to my first slam. Um, but I think overall, the impact Slam had on me was actually pulling out like my internal confidence and just like getting me to be the person who I am today. So, uh, Denver School of the Arts is not like a traditional high school. It's one of those where you have to keep like, uh, uh, I don't even know what you do, like, auditioning. rehearsing, auditioning, yeah, yeah. To, to go up to the next grade level. Uh, what uh, area were you in at DSA? Uh, I was in creative writing. Creative writing, of mm, course. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> um, I actually tried to audition for <laughs> piano, um, but my mom was saw that I only knew five notes, which was the first five notes of her release, and she's just like, let's, let's try writing, since you know you have journals full of writing. And I was like, no, let me do piano. So it was a, more of a way to kind of like coax out the, the Franklin you see today from, yeah. from the cocoon that was. I think uh, that school definitely coaxed out um, my personality and my writing, which is like something that I heavily rely on now, um, being able to really express who I am um, in my writing first before I hit a stage um, so that when I'm performing, I don't have to work as hard because what I'm saying is pretty much how I feel. 
Well, you have you are in a very special class. You are one of only I think three people. Yeah. To have ever been on Minor Disturbance. No bad time. Slam Nuba. And Week Ahead. And the Mercury Cafe. We don't fuck, fuck around. around. We don't waste your time. So, uh, talk to me about those experiences. Uh, how are they the same? How are they different? Um, what challenges did you face that were the same or different between all three of them? Uh, anyone that is particularly rewarding or stand out to you? Yeah, I think um, probably the most rewarding one for me was Minor Disturbance. Um, not only was it my first one, but I think the youth scene versus the adult scene are entirely two different um, cultures. Uh, the youth scene is really about cultivating more of the individ individualistic personality of the poet. Um, and by the adult scene, it's kind of assumed that you've already cultivated your own individual persona before you come in. Um, so there's not necessarily as much cultivation about you as a person. Um, more it is about you as a writer and a poet and a performer. Um, and I think that Minor Disturbance did a really good job um, with me in terms of really getting me to understand who I wanted to be, who I was, and how to get there. Um, I think like uh, with the other teams, um, it was definitely a challenge a lot of the times because the adults have to support themselves, where the youth kind of get a little bit more support because they're youth, so they get more money. Um, but um, more than anything, I think like my first experience on the Merc, um, that was my first adult team. Uh, I ended up being with one of my old high school alumni, um, my servants alumni too, and then a um, couple new people. And that experience was pretty wild because that was my first adult team and seeing how it was to kind of self-govern yourselves. And um, we didn't have a coach at the time until very late in the game. Um, and so having to really motivate ourselves, understand our work, understand our creative processes, and then cooperate and collaborate amongst five people. Well, that was a crazy year just because of all of that stuff. Like, even on a, a regular year, you wouldn't have come into all the problems you did with that year. Oh, my God. You lost a team member. Uh, I, I was the coach at first, and then I became part of the team, and then I had to drop out, and we had to get another coach in there, oh, and so we had to rewrite group so pieces, much. like, three times. and. So, like, the stuff that you, that you experienced on that is not indicative of your regular like, No, and even, like, I think my experience personally has been super unique because almost every single adult team I've been on has been almost without a coach every single time. Um, and I don't know um, if it's my energy, if it's just the universe or whatever, but, like, um, being a coach now in my disturbance, um, I see the integral, like, purpose of having a coach in a team just keeping everyone on track, keeping everyone motivated. Um, the coach really understands everyone's personal creative styles and creative processes and is able to mediate between the person who can generate writing immediately with the person who cannot generate writing and needs weeks to like get a poem up and being like, okay, you two, this is um, my strategy to get you guys on the same pace, to get you guys at the same level and having both of you really finish this piece on time, um, which I think a lot of the times is something that is missing at least in my experiences so far um, but I'm excited mainly because um, I know that's not the case usually so once I get on another adult team again <laughs> I'm gonna see how it's like with the coach uh, how was your so we've talked about minor servants we've talked about Mercury Cafe how was your experience with like, Nuba um, with Nuba it was uh, a really intense experience mainly because um, I think the cultures between Nuba and Merc are different at Merc um, it is very much about writing things that are authentic to you, writing things that are 
um, super like fun and unique um, and there's not as much emphasis on like pretty much creating bangers essentially on Nuba it is a very much like an effort to create bangers every single time that phrase we cut heads is a predominating like um, cultural thesis about how to approach poems um, both of them are really good I think Merck cultivates a very unique voice all the time like it's very hard to replicate Merck's voice because it's always so dependent on who's on the team and what inf- or interest they bring um, and then on top of that different writing styles on Nuba um, it's not necessarily about uh, creating a voice about creating um, just the most powerful metaphors and things like that so it's like I feel like if the two ever melded together you would get a powerhouse of just like dope lines mixed with unique authenticity um, but I think overall Nuba's experience to me um, was super empowering simply because um, I think a lot of the times too being like a person of color um, just different communities come up with different venues simply because of different needs and like um, the Merck is predominantly white um, and Slam Nuba is predominantly a, play, a place for people of color um, and that's just how it's been so far because um, of different demographics and everything. So it was like a super inviting experience too. Um, I mean, regardless, I love both teams either way, um, but it's just something that's true about the, the scenes and that's across the board in any scene. And for the historical you know, context, sure. there, there have been a, a number of times where there was crossover between the two scenes. And yeah. in my personal experience, that's always when those scenes were the strongest. True. Uh, when you had like, uh, Brando Chemtrails in the 2011 team came right. up from Minor Disturbance, like that team won the National Poetry Slam. And before there was a Slam Nuba, we had like Panama Soweto, yeah. on, like the, just the Denver team uh, with you know Katie Worsing and, and Isis and Janelle, and that was just like a very powerful team. Yeah. Um, and so really, and that experience I think is what really led to the creation of Slam Nuba. Is like the, the there was this need for there was so many great poets in this city. That we needed more than one Team. avenue to express that. Yeah. Um, going off of that, you said the next time you make an adult team. So you did not try out for an adult team. Was that by design? Was it just like life catching up with you? Was it like a, a specific pointed thing? I'm going to take this year off and just be a coach? Or was it like, oh no, I, I have like a week left and I haven't qualified for either team? So talk to me. I think it was a, a lot of things. Um, so. During the last couple of weeks to qualify, I had to really make a decision about what I wanted to do during the summer. I knew I was going to teach the minor disturbance team at that point, so a lot of my time was already dedicated towards that. Um, and so I had to really understand with Nats coming here to Denver, how much time do I actually have available and what do I want to actually do? Um, and recently I've been trying to explore into other scenes like the dance scene. Um, and really trying to meld those two communities together here in uh, Colorado. Um, I also really wanted to host this year for Nats. I love hosting. Um, But I also really wanted to coach more than anything, mainly because of my personal experiences with teams that I was like, you know what, this year I will guarantee that there is a coach available to anyone who needs a coach. Um, And I think I've just been in the scene long enough um, that honestly, I would even though Nats is in Denver, I would not miss out or be upset if I did not get to compete, even if our team won. Um, I feel like what I wanted to do more was cultivate a very powerful and um, authentic voice for Denver um, so that when people came to Denver, our poets would perform in a way that 
our community would be super proud of them. Um, and so, I mean, I, I think that's where I wanted to do, what I wanted to do more than anything was really just help in that cultivation and in that uh, creativity and that um, process. So when do you think that shift in goal, that shift in purpose uh, happened for you? Because you've been on, uh, consistently, you've been on teams for a number of years, and then it seems like all of a sudden... Uh, swapped. Yeah, swapped out. Um, so I recently started working with this organization called the America Latino Eco Festival. And the other thing, too, is uh, because of my biology background, I really just wanted to start exploring that avenue as well. Um, so this summer, I'm planning to work on more with them um, in climate education and climate justice efforts. Um, and so that's the other thing that I knew was going to take a lot more time. And I had to make a decision, do I want to continue doing SLAM or do I want to try this new thing? You know, um, both of which are pretty rewarding for me personally. But I think I wanted to try something new. Um, I've been writing and performing poetry long enough now that I know what that is for me. Um, so it was time to see what else was out there. Okay. Um, I told you I was going to ask you about it, but uh, you've taken to freestyling a lot lately. So take me through that that whole process. Like, wh how did it start? Um, what are your goals with this freestyling? Is it like a more outward predominant thing, or is it more just a challenge for yourself? I'm going to freestyle and see if I can get better. So talk to me about freestyling. Um, so it started actually in writing workshops. I was teaching writing workshops, and... The kids would write, and during workshops, a lot of times you're kind of like preparing for the next prompt or something like that. Um, but then at the same time, you want to show your constituents or your students that you're capable of doing what you're asking them to do. Um, so even though I was asking them to write, um, when it came time for me to share, I hadn't written anything. So then I was like, you know what, I'll just freestyle a poem off the top of my head. Um, and so that's really what started it, because in those workshops, I would have to share a piece to show them that, like, yes, I will do exactly what you have to do, but I will do it a little differently because I don't have three minutes to write, so I will just share right now off the top of my head. Um, and then that started continuing and growing more and more. And then I remember I did a couple shows where they had asked me if I could freestyle. And so I did, and it went really, really well. Um, so then I was like, you know what, like, I'm just going to continue doing this. And so I would challenge myself um, in ciphers um, to freestyle at gigs I was hired at to freestyle um, to the point now that I'm pretty comfortable freestyling anything anywhere, um, whether it's professionally, personally or competitively. Um, I think a lot of it for me is like my ability to really... Um, see what the situation demands in that specific moment and then meet that demand um, uh, At first it started with me just challenging myself, but now I feel like it's actually fulfilling a purpose in the community um, and fulfilling a purpose within me too, um, just to be more creative to test new boundaries to um, see how far I can extend my artistry um, and Then just the response I get from the community makes me feel like yeah continue doing this all right. Um, you mentioned you have a biology background, and a lot of your work has been very. It, it has touched on biological themes and and uh, you know processes that that you try to meld poetically. Um, how do you marry these two things together? Yeah, it's extremely difficult. The, the science and the art. Oh my god, um, I've definitely written poems that lean too hard towards the science, and they're not as accessible to the um, regular everyday person who doesn't have a biology degree. You know. 
if I start talking about um, morgulas and blastulas and uh, yeah, see, one. like no one, <laughs> no one knows what they are. Like it's so sad. Um, but then at other times I imbue some science into it. But then the scientist within me is like, that's like very um, easy science, like Wikipedia science and. My ideal for melding the two is to be able to come to a point where it's entertaining poetry, but it's also critically educating. Like, I would really love to talk about the inheritance patterns of genetics um, and how that affects you on a sociological level. Um, but it's super hard because how do you talk about the science about it and not lose people um, and also keep people entertained? Um, I think I've started finding a pretty good balance between it. Um, I think most of the time I was too focused on getting the science right and not focused on getting like the humanity of it. Um, and so now I feel like I'm getting closer to that, like understanding, okay, what is the humanity within science? Like, yes, let's talk about um, nucleotide bindings and how that affects like the certain codes that get printed for your genetics. But more than anything, that's the face that your child is going to have. Right. And so then that's what people really want to know. Yes. Talk to me about nucleotides. But at the end, make it connect to the, my child and what my child is going to look like, because that's super impactful. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm freestyling these questions, by the way. Yeah. I'm, I'm pulling a Franklin right here. And he loves it. Um, uh, you said you've tried to incorporate more dance and more other artistic styles <clears throat> into your poetry. Do you have an ultimate goal with that? Are you trying to like work toward some kind of a big project or would you just like to see more crossover in general between these? I think right now um, it started from I would like to see more crossover. Um, I think internally I see myself as being that kind of like multifaceted artist to where if you need me to dance I can dance. If you need me to write a poem I can write a poem. If you need me to act I can act. If you need me because I've also like dabbled in singing now um, and like just really stretching myself creatively in all directions, in all mediums. Um, just because I, it um, really creates a foundation for you to work on. Um, so even though I may not become a professional singer, just understanding the impact of tone um, across speaking, um, I think has been something that I've gained from singing. Understanding presence because of dance. Um, and utilizing that in my performances and then understanding to metaphor and then using metaphor in dance um, to create different uh, like messages within a dance um, understanding vibrato and singing and then playing with that concept in dance or in poetry um, there's a lot more inspiration when you have a lot more to pull from um, what What's one thing that you appreciate a lot about Slam as a venue, as like a, a, a place to express oneself? And what's one thing you would like to see different? Um, there's a lot that I appreciate from Slam as a venue. Um, I think Slam as a venue, um, it does make you want to be accessible to people. You want to reach as many people as possible. In such cases, you will get a lot of universal metaphors. But then pulling into the specifics of your personal identity, I think that relationship is something that I really appreciate. Like, yes, I could talk about culture and family, but then when I talk about it in specifics, I will talk about being Mexican and cooking tamales with my mom, right? But everyone understands culture and family. Um, I just give you my specifics because that's my truth. I think the other thing that I really appreciate about SLAM is 
I do appreciate competition because it really makes you pull out your best work. You really do have to showcase yourself at your most powerful, at your most authentic, at your most vulnerable, at your most um, connected with your internal conversation in the like audience. Um, and so you really do get to see people push themselves a lot. Um, I think the only thing I probably dislike about SLAM is um, how sometimes it seems super uninviting to people um, because of that effort to be high quality. A lot of people get super intimidated by SLAM and don't want to try it when every slammer knows it's just a bar game at best, right? Like, um, yes, it has a national circuit. Yes, it has huge impact. But at the end of the day, you are in a cafe with five random people judging your scores. Um, you may have a career born from that, but the most basic level is it's just a game. Um, and I think a lot of people get super intimidated by that. But I think it's just something you have to jump into and you can't let it intimidate you. Because once you do, you're not worried about the artistry. You are seriously worried about the scores at that point. And even like the most seasoned, the, the most celebrated slam poets will tell you that what works really well in one venue on one night can work completely differently right. in the same venue on another night or in a different venue on the same night or whatever. It's so subjective. It's so, so it's uh, just like, don't be afraid because it's literally just depends. Like, it's like, are you trying to predict the weather? Are you, then go ahead and try to predict a slam because it's about the same line of logic. A couple more questions, if I can think of them. <laughs> or we could um, chit-chat. Or we could chit-chat. Um, when you... So you, you know, uh, you've talked about doing a lot of freestyling uh, recently. When you were doing more, like, planned out, more, like, I'm going to sit down and write a poem, um, tell, take me through that process. Was it something that incorporated performance while you were writing it? Did you incorporate performance afterward? Was it more just like trying to pin down a concept or, or relate an experience? Like, take me through your writing process. Um, I think a lot of it was uh, very tantamount to which poem I was going to do. Um, I have certain poems, like I have this poem that really breaks down my identity and it uses a technique of anaphora or just like repeating a phrase. I don't know how to pronounce the word anaphora or anaphora, Let's whichever, right? Let's go. Um, but that poem ended up falling out in one night, in one sitting. Like, I didn't edit it at all. It's just that's how it came out. Um, but at that point, I was really frustrated a lot with identity politics. Um, not because I don't think they're important. I think they're, like, super important. But I think we got caught up too much in it. Um, and that people were always focused on, like, well, you can't say that because you're cis-hetero male from this side. And it's like damn, yes, okay, I understand that. But at the same time, I'm just trying to be human. Um, and so I got super removed from my own humanity because of identity politics. So I wrote the poem to let people know, this is how I identify from top to bottom, but at the very basic last line, I'm just trying to figure out who I am and where I come from, right? Um, but then there are other poems, like I have a poem about my dad being an immigrant worker and sacrificing everything. The entire concept was spaced around being a miracle worker. That poem went through three drafts before it finally hit a stage. Um, and between draft two and three was like a year and a half span of where it just sat in my Google Docs um, and just didn't do anything. Um, I went back to it and then saw what I was trying to do, but uh, at that point had connected with my father more about his history, so I had a way more intimate history um, than I did when I first drafted it. And so then, that one took a longer time. Um, and so I think a lot of it, it just depending on my intent, if it's self-expression just for me, usually can fall out in a night. 
if it's a story about someone else who has an impact for the community, we'll probably take a couple drafts. Um, you've been on every single side of Poetry Slam that Denver has to offer. So let me ask you, what does it take to be a successful member of a team, and what does it take to be a successful coach of a team? Uh, um, to be a successful member, um, you do have to deep, have a deep understanding of who you are personally. Um, you have to understand, okay, what is my creative process? Do I really take a long time to write or can I generate writing quickly? Um, how do I do in team efforts? Am I super quiet or am I one of the extroverted people who can um, say something? Um, am I one of those observant, like peacemaker people? Because all of that will play into how you're gonna um, delineate work in a slam team. Like if you are one of the generating writers, Yes, you will be in the creative process early on, generating a lot of work, and I think a lot of the body of the poem will be yours. And then later on, you're going to have to edit stuff out because you need you know, um, primary authorship for everybody. Um, if you are one of the quiet people, um, then you're going to have to learn how to communicate on a team in a way that your voice is heard. Because we are poets, we are all very, very talkative and very, very conversational. We all have opinions and great ways to express them. And if you shy away from that, your voice is not going to be heard and not going to be honored in the poem. And so if it means letting the coach know that you are quiet so the coach can mediate the conversation and give you space, um, letting your teammates know so they can watch themselves and check themselves and be like, OK, you know, so and so is trying to talk. Let's just be quiet because we all know we're dominant personalities. So let's not dominate the space completely. Um, and so that deep understanding really helps just on the logistical level. But also you have to be flexible with people's styles. Um, so if someone's a rapper and you don't rap, cool, you're going to have to stretch yourself a little bit and probably start rhyming a little bit more. If you're a rapper and you're put up with a straight up poet, you're probably going to have to break up some of your bars and start learning how to write extended metaphors in a narrative style. Um, as far as coaching, um, coaching, you really have to watch your team. You have to be capable of understanding people, like seeing the person who is getting frustrated because they can't share an opinion because dominant personalities are talking too much. So you have to be able to say, hey, y'all, let's give so-and-so a second to speak. Um, also being okay with setting responsibilities and being diligent. Like June 20th, rough drafts are done. They have to be done no later than that. You know, um, June 30th, off paper memorized. You have to do it. And then sticking to that and then pushing people and understanding that like this position of authority um, is something you should respect because you are trying to help people. You're not trying to control people, you're trying to help people. Um, and then just also understanding like your influence um, as a coach in a space. Like I have found that I am very, very positive, but can sometimes get off track because I allow people to be positive too. And so tangents form super quickly. And so I've had to learn how to, for lack of a better phrase, be less positive. Because I understand that I am distracting sometimes. You can't be less positive, right? right? You just have to be more diligent. Maybe more focused. Maybe more disciplined. Right. Maybe. Um, less tangenty. Just tangential. Tangential. I like tangenty. <laughs> yes. Well, this is your interview, so we'll go with tangenty. Tangenty. Uh, what do you think Slam's ultimate legacy will be? Like, looking back in 200 years, when the cockroaches have taken over the earth and they examine the, the ruins of what our scorecards here. And yeah, um, if they look at the scorecards like what do you think uh, Slam in a general broad sense is going to be remembered for? 
Um, I think slam for me is it took a lot of poetry back into the streets and away from academia. Um, Cause I feel like even the the beatniks started it a little bit. Um, it didn't exactly reach as many communities as, as um, slam has now. I think the beatniks were just a very much like literary audience. Um, a lot of the times they were guys. A lot of the times they were white, um, and so that's just what you fell into. Uh, slam now it makes an effort to break that. Like, it makes an effort to be people of color friendly, queer friendly, um, all classes, uh, all nationalities. If you want to use a different language, do so. Um, and then all the intersections between all of that, you know? So being a pe person of color and queer and poor, being, uh, you know, um, rich person of color and straight, whatever you want to do it, being a queer uh, white guy and tr um, being trans, like you really get a lot more identities out of SLAM. And I think that's what SLAM's legacy is going to be, um, is taking it out of this box of like having to be very academic or ac I can't even think of the academic? word. Academic, yeah. <laughs> being very academic and instead being very human. Well, with that being said, um, you've already kind of implied the answer to this, but I'll just ask it anyway. Do, uh, what do you think academia could learn from SLAM, and what do you think SLAM could learn from academia? Um, I think academia can learn a lot about um, the emotive impact of things. I think academia, a lot of the times, is worried too, more, or too much about the logical side about things, like, um, you know... What's the historical impact about this? Where was this born from? Um, how has this changed? Like sociological factors that influence people's lives. Um, and I think sometimes you just need to not worry about that and just listen to how someone feels about a situation. Um, and SLAM is a really, really good avenue and medium for that. Because um, a lot of the times the language of metaphors can literally just give you so much insight onto how someone is feeling. Um, I think SLAM poetry can... <laughs> Sometimes I feel like slam poetry could probably learn uh, a little bit from academia, just in terms of like literary technique. Um, you know, it'd be great to see some more hyperbole, not as much metaphor. You know, hyperbole, right? Get okay. some assonance in there. Um, someone do an abecedarian poem somewhere, right? Um, and then uh, I think that's something. That's just a low key personal one, but I think a, a lot of it is. Um, sometimes we do get people who are problematic. It's like, yo, go learn some queer theory. Go learn why it's not okay to misgender someone. Go learn why it's not okay to assume every Latin person is Mexican because Mexico is the closest Latin country you have, right? Um, go learn some of these social theories because a lot of the times this is what a lot of social or a lot of poets are talking about. But I think a lot of the times um, poets focus on their own uh, personal history. And so if it doesn't include a queer history, you're never going to know about it because you don't have it in your arsenal. If it doesn't include an immigrant history, you're not going to know it because you don't have it in your arsenal. So go to academia so you can learn how to just keep that in mind, even though it's not your personal history. So more, more for like a, a carrying of the tools, I guess. Like yeah. Academia should give you the tools, but SLAM should use those tools in maybe a different way. Yeah, in a, in a more humanistic way, which I think academia kind of doesn't want to because it wants to be objective. But being objective means you don't look at someone as a human. You look at them as a subject. Hey, I could not have said it better myself. Um, last question. Same last question I ask everybody. Um, you're walking along a beach. 
find a magic lamp on the beach. Rub it three times. Magic genie pops out. Says you have one wish for Denver poetry. What is your one wish? Collaborate more um, with everyone. You got musicians, put music to your poetry. You got dancers, make the dancers dance to the lyrics of your poetry. Um, you got an artist, have the artist do a live painting of your poetry. I think Denver's art scene, not just poetry, but in general our art scene is a little too fragmented sometimes. And I think poetry is a perfect avenue, especially slam poetry, to start collaborating with people. Because um, a lot of the times I feel like it's the same thing. If you're not a dancer and you don't have dance in your arsenal, how are you going to know about the dance scenes, right? Um, if you don't have art in your arsenal, how are you going to know about the art scenes? But poetry, because we are talking to each other all the time, we have the ability to connect people. And so I think that's a very strong niche for poets is being connectors between people um, because you are able to take a lot of things and just communicate it and let people know. Um, and then on top of that, you're able to collaborate and do awesome things. A follow up to that. Um, there have been different people, different organizations in the past that have really tried to push collaboration across genres like what you're talking about, whether it was with DCPA doing um, dance with poetry or with Poet as Muse doing like a, a visual art along with poetry. Why do you think those just haven't been sustainable in the past? Um, I think because they've been too singular. I think a lot of the times people collaborate between two venues and think that's going to be enough. Um, my goal is to start collaborating across multiple venues. So um, partnering not with just Block 1750, which is a dance venue, but then also partnering with EVQ Dance here in Denver. And then partnering also with um, Clear Park and Robinson. That's three dance venues you can collaborate with. On top of that, collaborating with the Denver Art Society or the um, Metro Contemporary Art Museum or the Art Museum. Having all of those running simultaneously so that it's not just uh, effort between two venues, it's literally an effort between scenes. Um, it's an effort between um, like communities within communities um, and just really trying to get everyone connected. Um, so it really demands a lot. It demands a lot of effort from a lot of people. But that's the only way you're actually going to connect scenes because otherwise you're not going to create a large intergenerational um, impact that's going to last for more generations. It will die as soon as those two people who ran those venues are no longer interested. Alright, well, another huge thank you to our guest this week, Franklin Cruz. Do you want yes. to say anything before I turn the uh, recorder off? want to plug anything or promote anything? Um, one, I'm full of a burrito. Um, so <laughs> there's that. Yes. Um, we both are. We both are full of burritos. Break that fourth wall. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, uh, just check out My Servants um, on Facebook if you can. Um, also check out Cafe Cultura. Um, also check out Block 1750, Mercury Cafe. Slam Nuba, okay. um, Strategies for Change. I don't know who else I could plug. There's a whole bunch of people to plug. I could plug four hours. Check out the art museum. Check out the, the, the DCPA, the Performance Center. Check out... Denver Art Society. Denver Art Society. Check <laughs> out Youth on Record. Su Teatro. Los Mocochetes. Check Los Mocochetes. Out. Las Tres. <laughs> Kayla Markey, Black Actors Guild. I could go on. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you again to Franklin Cruz. We're going to head back to the podcast. Another fantastic interview, this time by Franklin Cruz. Uh, cut it, print it, book it, send it out on wax. You guys are welcome. <laughs> 
But seriously, thank you again to Franklin for being so generous with his time and so open with his responses. Another fantastic local legend I can add to the list. Uh, now it's time for some quick hits before we get out of here. First up, your features at the Mercury Cafe this Sunday, May 21st, are Ash Vernon and Jordan Hamilton. Make sure you get there early and get that sign up for the slam of the open mic at 7.30. Uh, don't forget to volunteer for the National Poetry Slam. If you'd like to do so, you can visit npsdenver.com. And finally, I'm going to give my thank yous out to Franklin Cruz. Franklin is just slightly taller than me. Like, not a significant amount, but enough. I say to Jean-Go. Oh, what a silly drizzly bear. And the audience at the Mercury Cafe. This is like one of the few spaces in the world where you can scream as loud as you freaking want to. We'll see you next time, everyone. Until then, remember, the points are not the points. The poetry is not the point. The point is, was, and always will be the people. We'll see you next time.